This is New Life Christian Fellowship's weekly message podcast. You can find us online at newlifepetaluma.org. And now, this week's message. Well, good morning, New Life. Man, it's so good to see so many of your smiling faces this morning. It's even good to see your stoic faces for those of you who are just daring me to entertain and make you engage this morning. So thank you for that challenge. I accept uh, boy, it's so good to be together. Thank you, Emily, for sharing with us this morning, getting us ready today. It's so fun uh, to expand our voices up here on stage and to invite new people to engage. Emily, so fun. And for our team, if you're here, and this happens almost every week, someone gives me an offering envelope or they give me a uh, start here card. They say, hey, what do I do with this? Can you take it? And I almost always say, no, no, don't give it to me. That's a bad idea because I get busy and things happen and it goes in my pocket and it goes in the wash. So if you didn't get a chance to turn in your offering, your start here card, card. To your right, by those back doors, there's a metal box. You can just drop that in there after service. Well, have you ever noticed how much perspective shapes reality? So for example, uh, you've got a teenage daughter. She's dating a guy who's bad news. He breaks up with her. She's heartbroken. She's sobbing. She's so sad. She can't she can't get over it. And internally, you're what? You're doing somersaults. So you're so happy. You Thank God that that ended that way. Or your spouse comes home and they say, honey, I lost my job and they're torn up about it and they they can't sleep that night. But you knew their job was sucking their soul from them. And internally you're thinking, I don't know how we're going to get through this, but thank you, God, that you got them out of that job. Perspective shapes reality. The person who says, I'm going to have an incredible day today, and the person who says, I'm going to have a lousy day today, more often than not, are both right. Because perspective shapes reality. And if life is made up of a collection of moments, and our perspective shapes the way that we view those moments, I wonder if our perspective is that key piece to our life, fulfillment and joy and partnership. And I want to ask this question this morning as we head into Easter week. What is your perspective on the relationship between God and life? Maybe you've never thought about it in these terms, but, but I think for some, and it might not be you, but it might be your kids, it might be your neighbor, could be a coworker, for some people, when, God, when life is good, God is good. When life is bad or difficult or painful, God is bad. And when life is really, really bad, then we assume that God must be non-existent. And for a lot of people, And it could be some of us in this room today. You're barely hanging on. And if I knew your story, I would probably be feeling the same things that you're feeling today. But for some of us, disappointment with life often becomes disappointment with God. And our perspective about life and our perspective about God are inextricably linked. And I want to talk today about the idea that could it be that life and God aren't always as interconnected as you think, that life could actually be good and God is good, but life could be bad and God is still 
good. There was this thing in the 90s when uh, I became a follower of Jesus at 17, and uh, I was just new to this whole Jesus thing. And, and Jesus people, Jesus followers, they're kind of weird, right? So if you're here today and you're like, I, I don't know about you people, I get it. Okay, I get it, but you're weird too. You know what I mean? Like, we've all got a little Sebastopol in us. You know what I'm talking about? Like, no, too, too soon. Okay, all right, all right. Um, but when I first became a follower of Jesus, all these weird Jesus people, they'd shout these things at conferences. It's like, you nerds. They would say like, um, God is good. They'd say, all the time. They'd say, all the time, God is good. They had this chant, right? It's like, oh, dude, if you don't want people to make fun of Christians, stop giving them ammo. You know what I mean? Like, woo. But then life starts happening. And life isn't always all good all the time. Even for those of you classes half full people, life is not good all the time. And it's subtle and it's easy to slip into, but sometimes disappointment with life becomes disappointment with God. And that is the case for today's bad boy of Easter. Today's bad boy of Easter, we don't actually know that much about him. And if you're brand new with us, we've been examining three people whose lives intersected with Jesus in the last week of his life as we head towards Easter Sunday, which by the way, you gotta come back next week. Like you gotta come back next week and bring your friends and bring your friends' friends. It's going to be so good. But this last guy, we don't actually know very much about him. What we do know about him is that somewhere along the road, he made a bad choice. Somewhere along the road, he broke the law, probably a lot. And he eventually got caught. And the thing or the things that he did were so bad that beating him and throwing him in prison wasn't enough. The things that he did were so bad that selling him to slavery in another nation wasn't enough. Whatever this guy did and was convicted of by the Roman authority was so bad that putting him on a Roman ship to row in the galley for the rest of his life was not enough. The only uh, benefit, the only thing that this guy actually was good for in the eyes of the Romans at this point was making an example of him. And the way they would make an example of him was to crucify him to a cross so that all the onlookers would see this is what happens when you stand against Rome. Now, this man had seen crucifixions. He had heard the cries. He had smelled the smells. He'd seen the birds pecking at men who were barely alive. And he knew that this would be his fate. He'd be crucified. He'd be tortured. He'd eventually die. His body would be taken down off a cross, put into a wheelbarrow, taken to a dump outside of Jerusalem called Gehenna, where it would either be burned or it would be left to rot as animals and birds came and ate his flesh. And while many people begged for a quick death at crucifixion, this man 
decided no, he would die the way he lived defiantly. And the morning of his crucifixion, they pulled him out of his prison cell, which was more accurately probably just a hole in the ground with a grate over the top. They took the grate off, they pulled him out of the hole, and he found out he'd be crucified next to two people. One was another criminal, and the second was this Jewish teacher who had gained some notoriety, a man named Jesus. And this man was thinking, well, at least, at least I'll be crucified next to a somewhat famous celebrity, this guy Jesus. At least I'll get a big crowd so that when I yell and scream and curse the Romans and curse God, people will hear me. And I want to warn you right now, this is not a fairy tale. It does not end with happily ever after for this man It's not a Sunday school story on a flannel graph. This is a historical document of the death of three men. If you have young children in here, I will do my best to not be overly graphic, but I will be sharing a story. We have great ministry uh, up through sixth grade that you might want your kids to engage with. Otherwise, this is a great place to start a conversation about a historical event that took place in the life of the most well-documented human being in the history of the world a man named Jesus who lived in a place called Nazareth. And the story starts like this. Two other men, two other men, both of them criminals, were also led out to be executed. And when they came to the place called the skull, when they came to the place called the skull, they crucified him, being Jesus, along with these two criminals, one on his left and the other on his right. And so they get up to this hill outside of Jerusalem. And if you've seen movies or you've seen paintings, you oftentimes see people being crucified and their feet are somewhere, you know, three or four feet up and they're hanging up high and everyone's looking up at them. But traditionally, that wasn't the way that people were crucified because the point of crucifixion was to demoralize a human being, to mock a human being, while at the same time killing that person. And so... Depending on how many, uh, how many crucifixions the Romans had to, to uh, administer that day, depending on what was happening in the rest of the world, oftentimes people were crucified either just tied to a cross and left uh, to suffocate, or they were tied to a cross with ropes and then nailed in their wrists and along their feet. And they were usually only about six inches off the ground so that when onlookers came, they could almost look them in the eye and taunt them and spit at them and laugh at them, and mock them. And this is what's happening in this scene. Jesus and these two men being crucified. And as the nails went in to their wrists, Jesus says something that is almost beyond belief. He says this, Father, the fact that he could actually call God his Father in the midst of pain so unthinkable. You think about your worst day and imagine Jesus, his worst day. Father, he says, forgive them because they do not know what they are doing in the middle of his most painful moment. Jesus cries out to his heavenly father, 
not to end his suffering, not to curse those hurting him, but he says, Father, forgive, because they do not know what they are doing. And the people stood there watching. This was a public spectacle. And the rulers, these are These are the religious leaders that we've been talking about through this whole thing. These are the people who feared Jesus and feared the crowds. These are the the Jewish leaders who they saw their power slipping away. As Jesus said, you do not need these religious leaders to be your go-between between you and God, who are setting up these rules that are becoming more of a burden than freedom to you. These are the religious leaders who continually looked for ways to trap Jesus, and Jesus continually made them look dumb. And the religious leaders were there, And they didn't fear the crowd any longer. And they didn't fear Jesus any longer. They got what they wanted. And the religious leaders sneered at Jesus. And they taunted him. And they made fun of him. And here's what they said to him. You have saved others. That's a true statement. Jesus had healed and cared for and fed and saved others Let Jesus save himself, if he really is the Messiah, the chosen one of God. And there was another group of people there, the Romans, and the Romans had become desensitized to this. These Roman soldiers, this was part of their job. They carried out capital punishment. And they're there, and the soldiers came up to him, and they were also mocking Jesus. And they were dividing up his clothes, and they were laughing at him. And they offered him wine vinegar and they said, if you really are the king of the Jews, why don't you go ahead and save yourself? Now, this is a big deal because Jesus claims to be the king, the savior of the world. And you and I, there's, there's really no disagreement if we look at the historical data that Jesus lived and died and who he claimed to be. Jewish people have written about it. Romans wrote about it. Almost from the very beginning, Jesus' followers wrote about it. He claimed to be uniquely God and uniquely man, the savior of the world. We can, we can disagree about whether he really was that, but the truth is this is who he claimed to be and this is what everyone saw. If you really are the king of the Jews, save yourself. And this is ultimately why this guy Pilate, who we'll talk about next week, sent him to be crucified and said, I wash my hands of this mess. Because in Jerusalem, where Rome was the superpower, there was only one king. And that was the emperor and his name was Caesar. And so Pilate has Jesus crucified. And written above the cross, it says this. It says, this is the king of the Jews. And the reason why Pilate insisted that that be there is because he wanted everyone to know this is what happens to anyone who stands against Caesar. Anyone who comes up and says that they're a ruler or a king or a leader over Caesar only has one end, and that end is death. And not any death, the most painful death that anyone has ever experienced. And right here, the criminals take all their pain and all their anguish and all their hurt, and they turn it on God. Because their perspective of life and their perspective of God are inextricably linked. And if God were really good, they would not be here. Notice what one of the criminals says. He's hanging there next to Jesus, and he began hurling insults at Jesus. Aren't you the Messiah? Aren't you the one who can save? Save yourself and save 
us. You know what he's saying in this moment? If there really is a good God, maybe you've had this question. If there really is a just God, if there really is a powerful God, then we would not be here. Come on now, let's just be, let's just talk. I'm gonna stop, stop preaching. I'm gonna start meddling. Let's just talk, okay? You've got a chronic disease that does not seem to go away. And you start out praying and praying and praying and it's not going away and it's not getting better. And your Christian friends, they say, we'll pray for you, we'll pray for you. And then eventually you keep coming to them and they just get silent because they don't know what else to say other than we'll pray for you. And somehow those words are falling on on deaf ears. And then someone says this insensitive thing to you. They say, well, hey, have you prayed about it? And you just want to punt them. You're like, yeah, I've prayed about it. And guess what? It ain't getting any better. And somewhere inside of us, we start to think, if there really was a good God, a powerful God, a God who heals other people, who saves other people, why won't he heal me? Or you're going through life, and everyone around you just seems to be moving on up to the east side, right? Like everyone around you, their job's getting better. Their Facebook feed is like one vacation after another. Your, your brother just bought his second house and you know you have to go home at Easter and he's gonna be talking about his great job and his promotion and his houses and his beach houses and he's just, you know, he's, and you're just like, seriously, seriously? I'm still an intern? Like, what? I'm 60 years old. And you got the education and you tried and you prayed and you're not moving up. Isn't it somewhere inside of us? It's easy to say if God was really good, then this injustice would not be happening. Come on, you've been married for longer than six minutes and your marriage, it's tough. It's tough. But everyone around you, their marriage seems easy and fun and great. And you see their Facebook post, oh, she's the best thing that ever happened to me. He's the best thing that ever happened to me. And you're thinking, seriously? The be- that's the best thing? Okay, all right. What's wrong with me? No, no, no. What's wrong with them? What's wrong with my spouse? They're n- and your marriage is hard. And it's easy to think if there was a good God, I've prayed, I'm trying, we're grinding, we're working, we're going to counseling. It's not getting any easier if there was a good God who was actually powerful. Wouldn't he have healed us by now? Come on, we look at this guy and we think, how could you hurl insults? But then we take some of our own pain, our own disillusionment with life, our own hurts, our habits, our hangups, and we realize, oh my goodness, there are times when I connect my perspective with life and my perspective with God, and they are inextricably linked. And when life is good, God is good. And when life is bad, God is bad. And when life is really bad, God must not be good or powerful or maybe God doesn't even exist. And if this isn't your story, I guarantee it's a neighbor's story or a kid's story or a coworker's story. It was definitely this guy's story. But here's the crazy thing. If this man would have shouted, where is God? Do you know what the answer would have been? 12 feet to your right. 
Because you and I, we hit hard moments, painful moments, difficult moments, and we wonder, where is God? And the answer is always right here. Right here. And pain either causes us to turn on God or turn to God. This criminal turns on God, but the other criminal, it says, rebuked him, rebuked him. How dare you talk to Jesus that way? And here's his rebuke, because he realizes, wait a minute, this Jewish teacher who's being crucified, just like us, has not done anything wrong. And this Jewish teacher who's being crucified just like us can somehow still call God his heavenly father, can somehow still believe that God is good even in the midst of his pain. And he says, don't you fear God or have some level of awe and reverence for God since you are under the same sentence? He goes on to say, we have been punished justly. We're getting what our deeds deserve. We're criminals. We blew it right? We broke the law. We're being punished for breaking the law, but this man has done nothing wrong. It's as if the second criminal is thinking about what he just heard on the cross. And we have to put ourselves there. There's a crowd of people gathered around. They're screaming and yelling at you. They're chanting, crucify, crucify. There's almost a frenzy in the crowd. As you bleed and suffocate in the most excruciating pain you've ever experienced, and you hear Jesus utter, Father, forgive them. They do not know what they are doing. And in that moment, he knew. Jesus really is who he said he was. It's as if he's saying this. If, if an innocent man suffers like a guilty man can maintain faith in God, how much more could a guilty man for which there is some justification for his suffering? So if Jesus, who is totally innocent, can still believe in God when things go bad, how much more can I believe in God when some of the pain, and and listen, I know we're sitting here thinking, no, no, not me. None of the pain is, is my doing. But at least for these guys, they would say some of the pain at least is in my doing. Then he said to Jesus, remember me. Remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus says this great line to him. And I forgot to, I almost forgot to put it in our notes, which would have made this a very, very bad message. Because Jesus answered him and said, truly, I tell you, Today, you will be with me in paradise. Not because this man recommitted his life to Jesus. Recommitting your life on a cross is meaningless. Not because he made a bunch of promises to Jesus. Jesus, I'll do this, I'll do that. If you would just bring me into paradise with you, I promise I'll change my life. Making promises to God on a cross is meaningless. Jesus says, today you'll be with me in paradise, not because of anything you can do, but because of what I am currently doing right now. Each week at New Life, as we gather together, we celebrate what Jesus did in this moment. See, 
the night before this, Jesus, he was having dinner with his closest followers, and he took a piece of bread, and he broke it, and he gave it to him, and he said, this is my body, which is going to be given for you. And then he took a cup of wine, and we use juice, because it's only 10.04, um, not, you know, it's like, woo, I know it's Sonoma County, but whatever. Um, I can believe in God, and there's some justification for my ridiculousness. And we, and we take a, a, a cup of juice, because Jesus took this glass, and he said, this is my blood, which is going to be poured out so that you may experience forgiveness. Forgiveness for what? Seems like a fair question. If you're brand new with us, what do I need forgiveness for? Well, Jesus says that there's this thing and you've actually experienced it. I won't even tell you what the word is because I just want to, I want to describe it to you. It's this thing that happens inside of us that causes us to, to say hurtful things, to do hurtful things, to think things about other people that if they were thinking those things about us, it would break our hearts. There's something inside of us that causes us to do the very thing that we don't want to do. And then we go home at night and we think, I can't believe I did that. I'm never going to do it again. And then a week later or a month later or a year later, we're doing it again. And we think, what's wrong with me? You know what you're telling yourself there? You're telling yourself there's something inside of you that you cannot overcome through you. And the story of the Bible calls that sin. And it says that sin somehow has a hold on us in a very real way. It attacks us and it has infected and affected everything. And when life is going sideways and when life is going downhill, sin is the culprit. Always. It could be our sin, that we've chosen to do things that are hurting ourselves and other people. It could be other people's sin, that they're doing things and it's hurting us. It could be the fact that this whole world is infected and affected by sin, which brought death and decay with it. So children get cancer. So natural disasters happen. So pain has entered into the world. But Jesus, he came and he said, I'm overcoming the pain of this world. How? Not by taking my life, but by giving my life to pay the penalty for sin so that you don't have to take that penalty on yourself. And so he can say to a criminal on a cross next to him who did not recommit his life, who did not make promises, who to the best of our knowledge didn't change any actions because you can't when you're on a cross. He can say to him, today you'll be with me in paradise, not because of what you've done, but because of what I am currently doing. And there might be some of us here today, and we're going to take communion in just a second. And this is the time when God would say to you, you can trust me despite your circumstances. That I am good even when your life is bad. And that sin and brokenness and pain might have caused you to run from me, but I invite you to let that same sin and brokenness and pain cause you to run to 
me? Because like the first criminal, you might be saying, where is God? But like the second criminal, Jesus is saying, I am right here. So we're going to celebrate communion right now. Our guest services team is going to come forward. They're going to pass baskets. Maria's going to play a little background music. And this is just your chance. If you want to spend some time talking to God, maybe you're here and you're not ready to take communion. You're not a follower of Jesus. Maybe today is the day when you'd say, I want to become a follower of Jesus because of this reality that I'm hearing. Communion could be that great first step for you. Just have a conversation with God. And then when you're ready, you can take the bread, you can take the juice. Whether you choose to participate in communion or not, that is totally fine. But would you sit in this moment and reflect on the fact that Jesus offers you the very thing that has caused many of us to run from him. Healing, hope, forgiveness. That is totally fine. You can continue to pray. You can just tune me out. My family does. But I'm going to keep on. Um, here's the crazy, beautiful mystery. That Jesus didn't just take on the penalty for sin, which would be enough. My goodness. For him to take this thing from us that we cannot take for ourselves to bring forgiveness so that we might know God, our Father, our Heavenly Father, in a very personal way, that would be enough. But he didn't just take the penalty for sin. He broke the power of sin. We're told that three days later, Jesus rose from the dead, breaking the power of death and sin and destruction forever so that we can actually experience continuing, ongoing freedom. How does that happen? Well, it happens as we engage with God, our Heavenly Father. The story goes on to say this. It was about noontime, and darkness fell over the whole, fell over the whole land until three in the afternoon. And the sun, sun stopped shining, and you can just picture the scene. It's sunny one minute, clouds come in, and there's a quiet and Jesus called out, and oh, go back one slide, sorry. And the sun stopped shining, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Now, I, I want to be brief here because I want to land the plane eventually. I told Justin, you know, I got to get ready. I'm going to preach for 60, 70 minutes. And he shook his head and said, you better not, but God will forgive you if you do, you know. Um, the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Just a quick understanding, this, this curtain was this huge curtain in the temple, which the Jewish people thought was kind of the epicenter of God. God's presence dwelt or sat inside this curtain. And at Jesus' crucifixion, the curtain tore, which, which symbolized access, full access, unfettered access to God. 
How do we experience the freedom that God offers? Well, it's by taking advantage of the access that God has given, that we can call God Father, that we can talk to God like a perfect, powerful, loving Heavenly Father who is with us in the painful moments, with us on the mountaintops, guiding us and giving us strength all the way through. And Jesus called out, Jesus called out in a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And when he had said this, he breathed his last breath. And everybody thought that was the end. And next week as we come into Easter, we're going to look at two unlikely characters that you've probably never heard an Easter message about, two guys named Nick and Joe. And Nick and Joe's story intersect with Jesus all along his path, but they come to a crescendo in this moment. And what they chose to do next can give you 100% certainty that this is not the end of the story, but that Jesus actually rose again. It's something that is unbelievably believable, but you have to come back next week to hear their story. So what do we do with this? What do we do in this moment? Well, I guess Jesus is showing us that God is not what you and I have experienced. That oftentimes our experience and God become linked. And listen, if I knew your story, maybe I would say it's unavoidable that you've linked God in your pain, God in your trauma, God in your experience. But Jesus shows us that God and your experience are not inextricably linked. And he shows us that God can be trusted in spite of your experience that the very thing that maybe caused you or your kids or your neighbors or coworkers to run from God, your pain, is the very thing that Jesus came to deal with. That Jesus came so that when you hit those moments, you are not alone, but you can open your hands and fall into the hands of a father loves you, who can, who can partner with you. You might say it like this, God is not defined by your life, but God sent Jesus to bring you true life. God is not defined by your life. God is good all the time. And all the time, God is good. God is good. Now, let me ask you, because this is the point where it gets real. Is there a spot right now where your hands are closed to God? Is there an area here? Is there a relationship here? Is there a sickness? Is there an addiction? Is there something where your hands are closed to God? Because you're pretty sure if God was actually powerful and actually good, God would have done something by now. Can I tell you why God hasn't? No? No? Could it be that you're close to a miracle? Yes, but by definition, a miracle is miraculous. Otherwise, they'd call it an every day. It doesn't happen every day. Are you close to a breakthrough? Hopefully. If you get to the end of your life and this pain has never healed, 
Has God left you? No. Jesus shows us on the cross that God can be trusted despite our circumstances. And so the question this week, as we head into uh, this week leading up to the resurrection of Jesus, would you be willing to open up your hand, to open up that space, and to invite God into your journey? Maybe for the first time, you would say, I want to become a child of God, a follower of God. Maybe you would say, today's the day and I've been holding on to this thing so tightly and I've been wondering, God, if you're good, how could this be? And today I just need to say, I believe you're good and I still don't know how this could be. I have to live in the tension of this reality. Maybe today's the day you open up because I'm telling you, God, he cannot heal when your fist is tight. But he wants to be there with you. And Jesus showed us that he came to bring you life. I want to pray for us. And then I want to invite you, do not miss Easter Sunday and invite every person you know because God is good all the time. And all the time, God is good. Let's pray. Jesus, I ask that you would give us a renewed awareness of your presence in our everyday lives that you would give us a renewed confidence that we can trust you even in the midst of the mess. And Jesus, I do ask that you would do do miracles beyond the explainable to remind your kids of the depths of your love. And together as a community, we stand and we say, even if we have to live in areas of pain and live in the tension of brokenness in this world, we still want to choose to trust you. So would your presence be very palpable in the lives of my friends? And if you're here today and you want to start this journey with God, you can just tell him, just say, Jesus, I want to have a relationship with you. And I believe that what you did on the cross, you did for me. So would you guide me on this journey? Would you forgive and would you heal? I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We hope you enjoyed this week's message. You can find more information about New Life, including contact information, at newlifepetaluma.org. Thanks for listening.